glad to see everyone this morning. I want everybody to turn to the book of Ruth this morning, the first chapter and the 14th verse. And when you're all there, let me know. All right, I guess I'll start reading. 14, lift up their voice and wept again, and Ophrah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clinged to her, talk about Naomi, verse 15, and she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and to her gods. Return thou after, her, your, after your sister-in-law, verse 16, and Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to return from falling after you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, uh, my God. All right, well, this book of Ruth, you know, I did not know this, you know, studying the book of Ruth, you know, I'm going to mention another book a little bit to kind of give an idea how two books have some very similarities. You know, hearing the story of Ruth, you know, growing up in Sunday school and hearing the story of Ruth, you know, I heard two plots of the story. You know, as authors, when we write books or stories, we call plots, or they mean stories. You know, I thought there was just two, but come to find out there's actually three plots or three uh, centers of the story that I did not know of. So it's, it's, I learned a lot going through this book studying, digging, you know, learning from other ministers and just digging, realizing that this book had a lot of more perpetual than you think. It's a small book, but you'd be surprised how it has a lot of information that's very awesome for us to even today. And, uh, you know, that's old saying. They say dynamite comes in small packages. Well, this book is one of those books where it's small. There's only like four chapters, so it's easy to read. It, you can go to it quick. It's not hard to read at all. It's not a big book at all, but it has a lot of information, a lot of things. It's kind of like a turkey. You know, when you're putting a turkey and you're, you're filling in the, you know, the turkey in with a bunch of seasoning and, you, you know, you're stuffing the turkey in. That's what kind of this book is. It's kind of like a turkey. You know, you're stuffing all kind of stuff in it. It's one turkey, but you're stuffing all kind of things in it. So this book is one of those books where it got a lot of information. Even small, like the Bible said, don't despise the small things. So, there's three things I want to talk about. I want to lay a foundation of this book for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it is a love story. I don't know if you, some of y'all, y'all crazy about love stories or what, but it's a love story, and it, it's a good love story and has a purpose behind it. That's what's beautiful about this love story. It has a purpose. And then uh, two, the uh, kinsman redeemer. What is that all about? How they played in Israel's history and how that plays with us today about a kinsman redeemer. And number three, the divine providence of God. I did not know this by studying the book of Ruth, but how much divine providence of God is in this book. Now, you have to understand that little word right there because you're not going to understand this book or the book of Esther. If you ever, we, I, I did a book of Esther not too long ago. I know the book of Esther had a lot of divine providence, but Ruth is one of those books, those two books, God... All books are important in the Bible. I mean, and they all have to, if you read the Bible, there's miracles. And there is divine providence in a lot of areas in other books of the Bible. Like David, when he killed the giant, you know, that's a miracle and divine providence of God. You know, Moses, that's a miracle, divine providence of God. You go on and on. You see here and there, there's miracles and divine providence that most of, most of the time they go side by side of each other if you're reading mostly in the Old Testament, mostly in New Testament too. But this book, it's purposely set aside different than the rest of the books, the book of Esther and Ruth, for a couple of reasons. One, two is written by a woman. Esther, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth was written by women. Now, that was very rare back in those days because back in the days, women didn't have much status like they have today. You know, they don't have a lot of say-so or a lot of, things back then it was mostly male dominated so for books to be written by some women that's pretty pretty amazing in itself because most women would not got a credit so the holy spirit allowed that you know to show that women and men have a part in the kingdom of god or in his work so i think that's one of the reasons why god and mostly for divine providence you know if you look 
like at the book of Esther, for example. Esther, the, the, man, the person who wrote Esther, the scholar, whoever wrote Esther, he never mentions the name of God once, or neither does the people in the book. Esther never mentions God, if I'm not mistaken. None of the characters mention God in, in the book of Esther. Here, of course, there's characters, they do mention God, but the author, the way he wrote it, he never mentions God. And you're like, why both books do that? Why the author or why the Holy Spirit allowed these two authors, who, or whoever wrote the book of Esther and Ruth, why God allowed that? Well, to purposely to the show the divine purpose of God or the divine providence of God. God wanted you, when you read the book of Ruth and you read the book of Esther, you can, God, it will stand out. God wanted to make sure that when you read this book, that was the whole purpose was to know God's hand at work in both books. God wanted you to especially see like, hey, even God's name is hardly not mentioned or you don't, he's silent. He's still working behind the scenes in both books. So that's why, you know, all books, God has a reason for everything. Certain books were written for different reasons. Like if you read the book of Romans, why Apostle Paul written like he did the book of Romans is because the Roman church was going through things and he was trying to encourage them and set them in right doctrines. So each book has a purpose. Why? God just didn't put a book in there just so you can not be bored and read something. It's just then, you know, he, had, he put it there for a reason. So the book of Ruth is one of those books where you see God's divine providence. Divine providence, it's when God takes natural events, God takes natural means and he pushes a, a spiritual purpose behind it. In other words, God takes you and me. He takes the elements that are around us, and he moves it to his, to his purpose. He moves it to his plan. It's kind of like, uh, I'm going to use two analogies. It's kind of like if you have somebody on a dozer, and they're pushing dirt, and they're building up the mound, and they're pushing the dirt, and they're, you know, most of you do pads. You know, you're framing the dirt. You know, you're packing the dirt down so the house can sit on it. That's kind of how God does a little bit. God is on, God's the tractor, and he's the one driving the tractor, and he's pushing the dirt. He's pushing you and me to fulfill his plans and his, you know, his, his will. Another thing I like to use, it's kind of like a, a, a captain, for example, of a, or generals who are getting ready for a military. If you look, they have a map. And I didn't know that. I was watching a documentary the other day where, who, I don't know if anybody plays chess or whatever, but if you notice on chess games, they have like, the little things you move here and there. You have a, a bishop or you have a queen or whatever, and you move it to a certain spot. You know, like, okay, I'm moving here, I'm moving there. Well, back then in military terms, they had things like that. They had little, like, they had little soldiers, and they would place them here, and they say, well, this is where we're putting the soldiers at today. This is where we're putting, you know, they're going to meet by the river or whatever their, their strategy was. That's what the divine providence of God is. It's like you being the chessboard, and God is placing you in certain areas of your life to fulfill a certain purpose, to fulfill a certain plan that he has for you. You know, a lot of people, I heard a lot of stories growing up, like mostly Brother Black is a perfect example of like him being in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, how he was saying how many times he, got, he could have got killed you know, all of a sudden he got sick one day, for example, and he was supposed to be a tank commander, and somebody took his spot, and that person ended up dying. You know, if he didn't get sick that day, he could have died, and we wouldn't have but a blackie today and his family. You know, so it's just the idea of how that's the divine providence of God when things should not happen, and yet they did. So that's why I like the book of Ruth. I loved it more now more than ever because of that one word, divine providence of God. And another thing what I like about the story of Ruth is that how God, how bad things are bad, but God can turn them into good. You know, if you read the beginning of the book of Ruth, I encourage y'all to read it or listen to your, and your, if you've got Bible apps, y'all can listen to it, audio versions or whatever. If you read the beginning of the book of Judges, it's, I mean the book of Ruth, I'm sorry, it's dark because it was written in the time of the book of Judges. Now it's debating about what time it was written in the book of Judges. Some say it was during a time, one of the, uh, the uh, judges of Israel, um, Shemrah, I think his name was, the one that killed a bunch of Philistines like Samson did. They believe it was probably at his time. Or It's hard to tell which period. Was it in the time of Samson when the story was written or took place? It's hard to know which book or which judge in the Bible or what time really was written. 
but some but it was written in the book of the judges and it was a dark time i call it israel's dark dark ages you know how you had in europe you had the dark ages where there was plagues and mostly because the word of god was hidden from the people but it was a horrible time in european history it was called the dark ages I call it Israel's dark ages, the book of Judges. It was, it was an up and down situation. One minute, they would do great. Next minute, they would go down. They're like a roller coaster. You know, a lot of people say that they do great, then they go back, and they do great, they, do, they went back. You know, so it was up and down situation with them. So it was Israel's dark age. And so, but out of this dark period, and in the story itself, there's going to be a dark period. There's going to be a dark, uh, 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 how can I say it, uh, it's going to be a tragedy that's going to happen in this story. It's going to be like what happened in the book of Romans when Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wrote, uh, it says that all things work together for good, those that love God and that's a feel according to his purpose. So that's what the story of, of Ruth is also about. It's when bad situations, you know, we think when it's all over, we think, well, you, know, you know, I'm done for, this is it, you know, you know, it's, you know I'm finished, I'm cooked, you know. That's when God can take it and he can turn it around. And you actually ask the question, why God used Naomi? Why God used Ruth? Why, what was the whole purpose of this divine providence? What was the whole goal? What was the whole purpose of why God chose out of means of people, he chose them, you know, for this certain task? And we're going to get to that in the end why, you know. But in the story of Ruth, it, the, 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 the author makes it clear. It was written in the time of the book of Judges. Israel's dark history, dark time. And then what happened was there was a famine. Now, we don't know because it was written in the book of Judges. I believe God was judging Israel at that time because of their idolatry. You know, they were turning from false gods. So God was pretty much judging Israel. And God warned Israel, if you read, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus because some of these things that play in the story actually go to the law of Moses. But in the law of Moses, God warned them, you know, when you go into the land, you know, uh, you know, if you serve me, you fo pretty much follow the Bible. You know, if you follow the Bible, the law of Moses, you love the Lord all your heart and try to keep the commandments and do your best to love God and do what he tells you to do. Your land's going to be blessed. I mean, you ain't going to have no wars with your enemies. I mean, you're going to be at peace with your enemies. You know, the land's going to the land's going to be prosperous. I mean, it, it, you know, y'all going to get food in abundance. I mean, y'all going to have, it's going to be like paradise on earth. If you just follow me, you just follow the law of Moses and, you know, don't go after strange gods. So God in the Bible, he warns them ahead of time before they got in the land through Moses and then later on Joshua, before Joshua died. He, they both men laid it out to him. Say, look, if y'all disobey God, this is what's going to happen. You know, y'all were numbers as the stars. You know, your enemies are going to fight and want your land. When y'all were thousands of y'all, there's only going to be a few hundred of y'all. And he says, your land's going to, you're going to face famine. So pretty much this was happening right here. Israel did not listen to the book of the law. They did not listen to the law of Moses. They went their own way. They followed strange gods. So I believe personally, this famine was a judgment from God. But in result, you know, Naomi and her husband... They were in this famine. Instead of trusting God, instead of, hey, we're going to wait out this storm, they said, hey, we're just going to pack up all our, you know, our family. We can get the wagon together, and we're going to go west. You know, it's kind of like in those western shows. You know how when they, like, wagon train, I don't, some of y'all maybe know, some of y'all don't, but the old series wagon train where people will get together, and they will move out of Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, wherever they came from. They're like, hey, we're going to a new land. We're going to a new opportunity. You know, kind of like a lot of our ancestors did in America. You know, they were from European countries, other countries. They're like, hey, let's go to America where we can find a better life. So that's what they're doing. They're packing up all their goods, and they're like, hey, there's a famine in the land. Things are not going too great, but we're going to go, and we're going to make a better life somewhere else. You know, a, past, a greener pastures, you know, we'll make a better life. So that's what happened with them. They packed up all their goods, and they went to Moab. Now, Moab, uh, if y'all were here in my Bible study in the book of Genesis, uh, Edom and Moab was actually the descendants of, pretty much they were related to Abraham, pretty much. They were his cousin Lot's children. When he and uh, him and his daughters, you know, had a, you know, um, uh, the best word I can say this in the right way, in a nice way. They, they did things they were not supposed to. Let's put it this way. And out of that came, produced two of Israel's worst enemies, Edom and Moab. So 
Edom and Moab didn't have a good reputation with the Jewish people or even with God. They came out of incest. They came out of things that weren't right. So pretty much they were Gentiles already, but they were really dogs. They were really low. I mean, you couldn't get no lower than, you know, those two countries and those two people because of the incident that happened with Abraham's, uh, you, know, you know, Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew. So that came, out of that relationship came these two countries. And the, I mean, other than the Philistines and a few other enemies here and there, Edom and Moab was like the worst enemies Israel ever had. Matter of fact, uh, no, that was Esau. Never mind. That was Esau's people. Never mind. But anyway, them too. But they were one of Israel's worst enemies that they ever had. And that was a thorn in Israel's side. But anyway, he boo him and his family. They, you know, they moved there. And then things are going great for a little while, you know, they're, 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 they're living the big life, you know, the business was great, I mean, they had everything going great, you know, then finally, when we don't know how, but Naomi's husband dies, and I think his name was Elimelech, and it means that God is my, uh, how do you say, God is my God, I think the name means, if I'm not mistaken, but he didn't follow up to his name, fortunately, because he doubted God, but anyway, they moved there. He dies, and the, his two sons die. What actually their names means uh, whiny and sickly. I forgot the other names of their names, but that's what their name meant. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of, but that was the other one. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. So that's what their names mean. So, you know, because back then it was weird. Back then when, when uh, kids were born, daddies or mom would do two things. During birth, when they saw something happen in their birth, they named them after the incident of their birth. I know that's weird for us, but anyway, or they would name, or they would name their children after the certain type of characteristics that they would have. Like in the book of uh, the book of Genesis, when Esau came out, he was hairy, so they said, "Oh, we're gonna call him Esau because he's a hairy man." Or and they called Jacob, you know, heel catcher because when he was coming out as his mother, he was trying to grab Esau's foot. He was like, no, "I'm first. you know. He was trying to, you know, beat him to the, you know. And so Jacob and them was like, "Oh, we're gonna call him Jacob, heel catcher." So some people think that's how they got their names. You know, they they did something where say, "Oh, he's gonna be sickly or he's gonna be puny." So they named him after that. So I know weird weird uh, Middle East customs, but that's how they did it back then. And so what happened was, like I said, things were going great. Then the daddy dies and the two sons croak. And now, the only did this obey God by going into a land. You know, they kind of did like Abraham. When Abraham doubted God and he went to Egypt, and that caused a lot of problems. So they're just doing what their, what their great-grandfather did. You know, they doubted God. They went to a foreign land, a land they were not supposed to be in. You know, the place they were not supposed to in because of riches, like a lot of people do today, because of riches and because of fame and fortune, they go into the land of Moab, spiritually speaking, instead of being where they're supposed to be, and it ruins them. So they were out of the will of God, and it costs them dearly, you know. And so, but they had, a, but Naomi had two daughter-in-laws. One name was Obed, and one was named Ruth. And, uh... And the story goes, they met on the side of the road. I mean, Miomi lost everything. She lost her, her, her husband. She lost her two kids, her sons. I mean, she got nothing. I mean, she's, all she has left is to go back to Bethlehem. And by the way, Bethlehem actually means the house of bread or the bread basket of Judah. So that's what Bethlehem means. So if you ever want to look that up, look that up. That's pretty interesting. But she said, I must go back to the bread basket or go back to my country. You know, somehow she's kind of like the prodigal son. When she tasted the world, she had everything of the world, and then she lost everything. Now she must go back to the father's house. You know, she got to go back to Bethlehem. You know, you know, a lot of people, they lose a lot, but sometimes they have to lose a lot to know what they lost. So they have to go back to Bethlehem. They have to go back to God. They have to go back to the house of God. So she told, she gets there in the middle of this road, not knowing that this conversation with these three women would actually change history. There was a lot of history moments that were going on at that time, but they didn't even know at that time that God had great plans in this conversation right here. See, the, you know, the famine was bad and they went to Moab. But what God meant, what the devil meant for evil, God can turn to still good. And uh, one of the things that she gave him, she gave him an option. 
She's like, hey, y'all can go back to Moab. Y'all can go back to your families, your friends, because I have nothing. I lost everything. I have no, I have no husband. I have no, no sons to help me. I mean, I'm, I'm done, pretty much in, in, in a way speaking. You know, I'm cutting it short or getting to the point, but that's what she's telling me. I have nothing. So you have a better chance of going to your old country. And so the other one said, okay, I'll go. She went because her heart wasn't rooted for God. Like, you know, we're about to find out with Ruth. Her heart was not deeply into God like Ruth was. You know, she didn't really have that deep connection with God like Ruth did. So she went back. And then as we read, you know, she said, well, you can go back to your family. And Ruth was like, I want to stay with you. I see something. Even if she doubted God. You see, at this point, you got to remember, Miomi, her whole world's turned upside down. She's in a dark period. She's doubting God. She like, she's asking questions like, you know, why, why you killed my two, you know, my two sons, Lord? Why my husband is dead? I mean, she, you know, she's at that period, and she lost everything. So she's really in a dark, dark place in her life, you know. And, and here... Ruth still sees something in Miomi. You know, she, she, you know, remember, she was married to the family, so she saw how Miomi served God and how she kept to the law and how she served God, you know. So I believe Naomi had a big influence on Ruth because she saw how she lived for God and how, you know, how, and she saw that she was different than the rest of the family. She saw that she was really staying out of, God, of being in love with God or the laws of God. And we read over here, she, she said, treat me not to leave you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you bury it, I'll bury it. Matter of fact, um, if you ever, I don't know if you heard of Chris Tomlin or whatever, but one of his famous songs that he's known for is this passage right here. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you move, I will follow you. So, you know, you ever get the chance, look it up. That's where most people believe he got the inspiration for that song right there from that. So it's a great poetry. It's been used for a long time. And it shows you how powerful it is that even a big artist, Christian artist like him, actually took and made a song out of it from a little book. So it shows you how powerful that passage is from a man to write it, you know. So it shows you it's very powerful. So anyway, she leaves Moab. Both of them leave the world behind. They leave the old world. They leave Satan's world. And they're about to go back to, to, um, to Bethlehem, to God's territory. They're about to go to God's place. And so, as the story goes, they crossed over, and, uh, and of course, people recognized them, you know, sure, mostly, you know, mostly Miomi, you know, and they're like, is that Miomi? You know, they, you know, they were at the well, the older folks that, you know, saw her, or talked to her, they were her neighbors, her friends, and they were like, is that Miomi? You have come back? You know, it's kind of like, you know, in church when a lot of people backslid, you know, when we come in. You know, that was you, you're back. You know, so they were happy to see her back. You know, but she was so darkened at this time. She was so depressed with her life and everything. She, she, she said, she, you know, she said, don't call me Miomi. Call me Myra. That means bitter. You know, God has done bitterly with me. So she, she's, she's struggling. She's wrestling. She's, you know, she's, she's asking a lot of questions. Why, if, how, and when, you know, she, a lot of things are going in her mind. I'm back in the land. I have what I'm going to do. Because back then, you got to understand their situation back then. Women didn't have the opportunities like they have now. See, back then in the culture, and this, that's how it was back then, a lot of it was based on the man. You know, the woman had to depend on the man. So when your husband died and your children or your sons died, you were a creek without a paddle. I mean, you were like, you had no one to take care of your farm. You had no one. You just totally, it's kind of like in the Western movies. If you ever watch Western shows where people go up and they take up steak and they go and, and the wife dies, she has to take care of the farm or she has to hire hirelings. It was rough back then. Even back then it was rough. Can you imagine back then it was really rough you know, that you can, you have to take care of the land, you have to, you know, and most women, they were not, they were not up for that, most women, they were, you know, or that was something what a man could do, so she has, you know, she has no, pro I mean, she has a property, but, you know, the way it was set up in Israel, she could have lost that property, some people, people believe she sold it, or they, they, or someone else took it, we can get to that as we go on in the story, but so many things can go wrong, so, Story goes, they went to their place, they're cleaning up the place, and then, you know, and then uh, Naomi and Ruth, they're like sitting around the table, I'm sure, and they're like, hey, you know, we got to eat. 
you know, and, and of course, uh, Ruth, she don't, I'm pretty sure she don't know all the laws of Israel, you know, she's from Moab, so Naomi helps her a lot, understanding the law and understanding the Jewish custom. She probably told Naomi, you know, Ruth, you know, hey, you're in Israel now. You know, things are different than it is when we were in Moab. You know, we have certain customs. We have certain things. Because as we go on the story, or I'm going to tell the story to you all, and you all read it, and you get a chance, she's going to explain some things about their culture and what they believe. And so, and she said, well, we're poor. They had no money. You know, they're coming back. They're broke. They have no money. They have, you know, they have nothing. So, Naomi tells Ruth of, I'm about to shock some of y'all, but God's welfare system. And you say, God has a welfare system? Well, it's a little different than men's welfare system. You see, back then in the book of, I believe it's in the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus, one of them, or in, in the book of Moses, the book of the law, that back then, there, see, God cares for the poor. See, a lot of people don't realize God cares for rich and poor. So God cared for the poor individuals in Israel. So God set up a system to take care of the poor people. So what happened was back then, if you worked in the fields, see, that's a big difference between God's welfare system and men. Men's welfare system says you don't have to work at all. We just give you everything, and, you know, you just sit there, and we feed you like a, a mama hen with a bunch of birds. You don't have to do anything. Stay in the nest. We'll take care of you. But in God's economy, God was like, okay, yes, I will take care of you. Yes, I will provide for you, but you still got to get up, put your alarm clock on, drink your coffee or whatever, energy drink, coffee, whatever people say, and you got to get up, and you got to still go out there and get it. You see, so one way or another, God set it up where, yes, I'm going to take care of you, but you still have to go out there and still provide. You still got to go out there and make an effort and still go out and work out there. So God does have a welfare system. Is this God's way is so much better. You know, men messed it up. I mean, and people abuse the system, and men, you know, politicians abuse it for whatever reasons, but God does have a welfare system. You know, he does take care of the poor. So what it was back then when they, when they pull, like, for example, when they cut their wheat, they would drop some on the ground. And the Lord said, hey, if there's enough, they'll pick up. And they told him, don't go pack and pick it up. No, like, oh, I dropped one. He said, no, if you drop some grain, leave it there so the, the, the pickers will come and they will grab it. The gleaners, they will pickers or greeners, and they will grab them and they will cook or they bring them home to bake or whatever they had. So that was God's welfare system. So anyway, Ruth's out there. She got them. They got to eat. So she's out there, and she's the youngest one. She went out there. She went work. And then this is, this is where the providence of God comes into effect in the middle of the story. Remember, Bethlehem is called the house of bread. I mean, there is like, it is their, their algae is their is their thing. It's like wheat and, and, and bread. It's like that's their main focus. That's their main inner structure. That's their main crop. You know, it's kind of like over here how we have a lot of sugarcane fields or, or uh, you know, or we have oil fields or whatever. We make a lot of money with it. That is our resource in Louisiana to make money. So in that area, grain was their big thing. You know, it was, Bethlehem was called the house of bread or uh, the bread basket. That's what it was called. So there's a lot of fields and there's a lot of owners. But so happens she came to the field of Boaz. Now, that's not by, you know, most people will say, oh, this is an accident. She just like, she saw this field and she's like, oh, I'm going to go here today or, or whatever. No, God purposely, even she didn't know it, God purposely directed her to that field so she could know Boaz. See, God was, in divine providence, God was putting everything together. He was using natural means, a field, poverty, uh, uh, tragedy. He's moving it all towards where that one man, Boaz. Now, Boaz, if you read in the Bible, like most in the Old Testament, Christ appears in two ways in the Old Testament. One, he appears himself, you know, like uh, Abraham when, when, the, when the angels came to Abraham. I believe, I believe it was three angels. One of them was Christ. And he came and told Abraham what he was going to do with Sodom or whatever and stuff. And he appears in Gideon, you know, and uh, he appears to Gideon. Most people believe that was Christ. They say it was an angel with a big A. So every time you see an angel with a big capital A, that means that was Christ most of the time. So, but anyway, Christ would appear 
in certain parts of the Old Testament because the Old Testament was a reflection of him anyway. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. So Christ would appear in certain spots in the Old Testament. And so or, and another two, there was people who represented Christ or people when you looked at them, they had a certain characteristics of Christ. They had a certain, uh, you know, when you looked at them, yeah, you look at them, they're like, oh, wow, I see Christ or I see a character or I see that person representing Christ. It's kind of like, uh, I don't agree with everything, but it's kind of like uh, in the C.S. Lewis Chronicles. When you look at the lion, that lion represents Jesus. Even the book don't say he's Christ, but in his characteristics, he represents a Christly character, a Christly figure. And some stories do that in other literature. So in the Old Testament, Christ, when you look at certain individuals, you're like, oh, I can see that part of Christ in them. Or I can see they're playing their role as Christ. You know, like Joseph, for example. Joseph's another perfect example of Christ. You know, you know he saves Egypt. He's sold by 20 pieces of silver. I mean, I mean it's almost identical to Christ. And he marries a Gentile woman, where I'm going to get to that after all, where, where that represents. And so everything that Christ kind of does, he forgives, you know, and, and Christ forgives. God, Jesus, Jesus taught a lot about forgiving your enemies, and Joseph forgives his enemy. You know, he forgives his brothers that were his enemies. You know, he forgives. So there's a lot of characteristics or a lot of similarities. You can look at that person and say, oh, I can see Christ in that person, in the way. So Boaz, he's one of those people. He, he's also not just, well, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give it away right now. But anyway, he represents Christ. He, you know, when you look at Boaz, he's a type of person. Oh, wow. He, some of the things we're going to, the, the way I'm explaining the story to you, you're going to pick it up right away. Like, oh, wow. He does remind us of Christ. He does have that, you know, that feature of Jesus. So he's one of those characters where you look at him. He's a Christly type figure. Anyway, he comes to the field. Of, you know, he comes to his field. He owns a field. He's very rich. He's very wealthy. And he's looking around, you know, and he sees, you know, Ruth. And he's like, oh, who is she? And some other people, some of his foremans or somebody or somebody knows them very well. Like, they were giving her testimony. They was like, oh, she's from Moab. And, you know, she, you didn't hear what she done? He's like, what? Like, he, she's, you know, she's with Naomi. And, and he, she loves Naomi. You should have heard what she did. She, she, she left her whole family. She left everything behind. And she loved her mother-in-law so much. And she loved God and the law so much that she abandoned everything and, and came, to, to, came to Israel. And that probably blew him away because there were some, even some Jews who were not dedicated probably like she was. She was dedicated to the law. If you read, if you look at the story of Ruth, she really loves God. You can tell she, she's for the law. I mean, when Naomi, if, then later on in the stories, when she's telling about what to do, she's willing to do it. You know, she's not doubting Naomi. She's not questioning Naomi. She's like, okay, I'll do what the law of God tells me to do, you know, because she loved the Lord so much that she loved the word so much that she was a godly woman. She's like, I want to obey the law of the land. I want to obey the law of Moses. And some, there were even some Jews didn't even do what she, you know, she didn't, they didn't even have the heart like she had. She was a real Christian, kind of speaking. She really lived what she believed. And Boaz, he's that type of individual, too, if you read the story. Like, for example, he's in the field, and he's, he's telling people, God bless you all. And they're like, God bless you. You know, he was one of those individuals. He followed the law. He was a real Christian as well. And he had a kind, him and Ruth, they had a kind spirit about them. They had a caring spirit. You know, they, and they love, most of the things you pick up in the story, they both love God. They both love the law. I mean, they want to follow the law to the T. You know, they want, and their heart was into it. You know, and they were not one of those Christians or those Jews where, like, when they went to the tabernacle, they praised God, and the next day they were worshiping Baal, or they were not living a double life. They really believed in what they believed in, you know. They, like, they were really 100% into their Bible. They were 100% into God. So that's what I picked up when you read the story of Ruth and Boaz, both of them together. You see that they have a good spiritual connection. And then as the story goes, you know, Boaz hears a story of how she came. And so he meets her, and they have like a little picnic, I guess we can say today. They got together. They ate a little bit. And then he, he was not only 
it was not just, you know, yeah, she was a beautiful woman, but I feel another reason why he was attracted to her because the stories he heard from about others about her. He was amazed how much people had a good testimony. Like she had a good, a good, not say image, but she had a good, a good track record. Everybody was like, oh, wow, she left, you know, and he saw how everybody was impressed by what she did and how she really, and he saw that she, he really, she really loved the law. She really loved God. Matter of fact, later on in the story, when he, they meet up again, and he's like, bless you, daughter of, you know, you know, virtuous woman. You know, he's, he's really, you know, impressed with her. He's, re- you know, and I think that's, number one, she was beautiful, of course. That, it helps. She was beautiful. But he was also attracted not just to her beauty, but he was attracted to the law. She was attracted to her love towards God and how he was just blown away how she sacrificed all. She was unselfish. She sacrificed all to help her because of her love of her mother-in-law and God. You know, she sacrificed everything to move to a world she never knew. It's just like if we went, it's kind of like a, a, Beverly, a Beverly Hillbillies type situation. These guys were in the hills, and all of a sudden they moved to California, and they're in a whole, and it, I mean, they're in a whole different world. You know, their thinking's different. It's just a whole different, you know, it's a whole different culture, you know, so it's a whole different world for her. So it could be pretty scary to go to a place you've never been before, you know, you don't know what they do. You know, you have to find out what they do. So, you know, she, you got you to gotta put it in her standpoint. She's in the world, and yet she looked, and she had faith in God, and she came to a place where she had no idea what they believed in. She knew maybe a little bit, I'm sure. But I'm pretty sure when she got there, she learned a lot more about the Jewish culture and life than she did when she was in, you know, Moab, I'm sure. So she had to learn the culture. She had to learn the way. She had to learn what to do, not to do, you know. So it's not that easy to move, you know, just like any of us. If we were moving from Louisiana to another place, I mean, we would have to learn, you know, all kind of other stuff. So it's not easy to move in that transition. So they were like, oh, wow, she left everything. And, and so they were impressed by her, mostly Boaz. So she, and Boaz, to help her out, he told his workers, he said, purposely, when you're grabbing the grain, purposely, don't let no one see you, but purposely leave some extra on the ground for Ruth so she can grab extra. So she grabs extra, and she goes home to Naomi, and she tells Naomi, you know, you know how most women are. They can't keep things to themselves. You know, they got to tell their girlfriends the whole life story. So she goes, tells her mother-in-law, you know, hey, I went, I, I went today and this man, I met this man Boaz and he gave me this extra food. And she's telling all the stories. And Naomi's happy. She's like, oh, praise, you know, other words in our language, praise God, you know, you know. And she's like, uh, and then she tells him, you know, she gives you know, because Ruth never been there. She gives a little history. Say, you know who that man is, huh? She's like, no, I mean, uh, he gave me food and stuff. But who is it? She said, did you know we related? She said, did you know that he's from the same house? We're actually relatives. And, you know, and he's, did you know we're, we're in trouble? But did you know he could be our kinsman redeemer? Now, I'm going to give you a little history background into the law of Moses, what a kinsman redeemer was and how it applies to us. I'm going to talk about it later on more. See, a kinsman redeemer back then, it was set up like, for example, if a man would get married to a woman and he got killed in battle or he just got, he just died, whatever reason he died, and she's a widow. She has no husband and she has no kids whatsoever. The duty of a kinsman or a kinsman redeemer, he was the, it could have been the brother, it could have been a cousin, it could have been somebody in that family. They had to marry that woman to keep the bloodline going, to keep the genealogy going, to keep, you know, so the family won't lose the inheritance and they won't lose most of the bloodline. They want to keep the bloodline running through the family. So that's most of the reason why it was set up for. And there's other reasons, like, like I said earlier, uh, it could be beneficial for the woman. She could, she could have lost her husband. She got to take care of a farm. And this kinsman redeemer comes, marries her. He takes over the farm. And so that's pretty helpful, you know, in her point of view. So, and, uh, and another thing, too, they wanted to keep the land in the tribe allotment. Other words, in the, uh, I think it was Levitical, Levitical law or one of the laws of Moses, where a tribe had to keep the land in the tribe. 
other words, they could not go to their nearest tribe, Dan or Laftali or um, or uh, Azakar. They couldn't. Judah couldn't go from from that tribe. Judah couldn't go to uh, say, "Hey, I want to sell this land to this tribe, this Jewish tribe." They couldn't do that. According to the law of Moses, they had to stay in their tribe to keep the land in the tribe. So most people believe that's one of the reasons why this kinsman redeemer was so important because it actually kept the property into that tribe, into that family, if that makes any sense. I know I'm going through a lot, but you, ha you have to know all this to understand some other parts of the story that's going to be coming up pretty soon. So you got to know all that. And another thing, too, if the property was taken away or stolen, a kinsman redeemer, of course, later on, that's what Boaz does. He, you know, to buy the land, you, had, you needed a kinsman redeemer, and he had to be rich, and he had to be willing to do his part as a kinsman redeemer. So kinsman redeemer was a big thing back in their culture. I know like, because most of us, we were raised in the United States, so we had uh, European type cultures. Well, to us, this is strange. This is like, this is like going, you know, we, you know, we took a spaceship from Earth and we went to Mars. I mean, it's a whole different, you know, because we're not used to that type of culture, but that was the Middle East or Jewish culture back then. Now, they don't do it too much as much as today. Most in Israel, they don't do that. They don't, they don't do that no more that, you know, they took most of the European standpoint. If you just love someone, just marry them, you know, if they're decent and honest or, you know, marry them, you know. You know, they took more of a European type culture in that area. So they don't, pretty much, they don't do that too much now, my understanding is. But back then, the family and the bloodline and genealogy, that was all important Mostly to the Jewish people, that was really important. Because if you read the book of Matthew, because you see the book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. It was written for the Jewish people. Matthew was Jewish, he was a tax collector, and he was trying to reach his, his relatives, He was the Jewish people. He was trying to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's why when you read the book of Matthew, he's going to a lot of genealogies. He's going to a lot of family history. Because he's trying to, because to the Jewish people, that was a big deal. A family deal. Most if you claim to be a Messiah or you claim to be somebody, you claim to be something, you better prove, one, you are from that family. So Jesus, so through the Holy Spirit, he's explaining to the Jews that through genealogy, Jesus was the Messiah. He did come from the house and seed of David. So that's why I'm saying this because that back then, it ties in, I think it ties in with it because back then, that was really important back then. To us, it's not, I mean, it does, but it's not as a big deal as it was to them back then. But still, I mean, it was different than today. It was a big deal. Fertility of children and land, that was a big deal back in those days in those cultures. So anyway, she's given them the history of the kinsman redeemer and how he was a kinsman redeemer. And then, in uh, other words, Naomi takes the next step. She sees God. Is moving, you know, God is stirring up something. So she kind of said, she don't help it alone, but at the same time, she does help, if that makes sense. She's not at the will of God, but she kind of knows, she knows God's in action. God is doing something. So she gives advice to, uh, to Ruth. She said, hey, you know, take a bath, get some perfume, put some makeup on, you know, get dressed. Because, see, she was wearing uh, uh, widow's clothes, yeah. And they're black. I mean, it's black. It's terrible. It's, it's not attractive at all. It's terrible. And it's very depressing. So she's saying, honey, you know, get you some, some clothes, some, you know, something that's going to, you know, something that shows you're available, you know, and, 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 and paint the porn. <laughs> Other words, you know, deck yourself. Not, don't look like a whore now, but uh, kind of, you know, but look good, you know, at the same time. You know, get, you know, he saw you in the field all sweaty and Wearing those clothes, and he thought you looked good then. Just wait till you refresh yourself, sweetheart. So he, you really got to get his attention now. So she's giving him all this woman advice, you know. And so he, she decks up herself. And what happened was that night they had a, a bounty harvest, they would call it. What it was is, is that in the end of the day, they would get all their crops together. And it was called the trestling floor. What it is, it was like a cement about this big. And what they would do is they would take up grain and they'll take a pitchfork or whatever they used back then, and they will flip it up in the air. So when the wind would come, it had to be at the right time, though. It was windy at that time, so that's why they did what they did as well. When the wind would come, it would actually separate from the chaff and the wheat. 
So in other words, the wind would actually separate the good wheat and throw away the bad stuff. So that's why it's still in the Middle East today, they still do it. That's why they, they throw it up in the air. I don't know if you ever saw documentaries on it when, or whatever, or movies on it. That's, they had to throw it as high as possible so the wind could separate. You know, it's kind of like a Christian life. You know, you got your bad Christians and you got your good Christians. So that's something you can preach almost right there almost. But so anyway, so the wind would separate and they would make it in big piles. And now back then... After the men would do their harvest stuff, they would have a feast, they would eat and drink. They would go back to their property, and they would sleep there. So you wonder, why did they do that? Because, you know, Boaz, it makes it clear in the story, Boaz, when he did his harvest, he went sleep in the field or the piles of wheat that they piled up. Well, a number of reasons why they did that back then. Remember, this was in the time of the book of Judges. And at the time, there's a lot of things going on in the book of Judges. I mean, there's, there's all kind of stuff going on. And worst of all, there was marauders. There were thieves. Or, or there was invaders, people who would come from other countries to take their, their, their food and stuff. Because if you read, I believe, in the, uh, in the second book of Samuel, when uh, David's talking about his mighty men, one of David's mighty men actually had to kill a bunch of Philistines because they were coming down when, uh, when they were doing their harvest, when they were doing their, uh, I don't what it was, it was grapes, or I forgot what it was, or it was something. And when they would get the harvest in, the Philistines would come and, and snatch their food. So one of David's men took a sword, and he was whacking them all down, and pretty much his sword got stuck in his hand. He, his hand went crap. So in other words, he couldn't move the sword out because his hands was like this. He was fighting so much that when they tried to move the sword, his hand was still, uh, yeah, it was stuck, yeah. So I'm giving that example of why they were doing that because there was people nomads or people from other countries. It depends. It were people who were going to steal the food. So they were pretty much watching over their possession. They were out there. They were making sure them. And sometimes they would take the whole family sometimes. They would take their children, their wives even out there with them. They would protect their food. And plus they had a camp out. So, hey, you had a family. You had a, you had a family event. So you watch your food. You make sure no one stole it, protected it. And you had a family cookout. You know, you had a family Camping out, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever they had back then. So that was all in one. So they would do that. But, of course, a Boaz, he had no family. And I'm not saying they all did that, but he didn't have a family at the time. So he would go sleep out there. And Ruth went out there, and he, she uncovered his feet. And he lay by his feet. So, okay, European-wise, you know, we have a European mindset or American mindset, like, what in the heck this woman doing? Why would this woman will go uncover her, uh, cover this man's feet? I mean, what's the deal? This is kind of crazy. What's wrong with this woman, you know? In, in European mindset. But you got to understand, she's obeying. You remember, she's following all the instructions from Naomi. See, she's not just going out there. She's, every, she's, she's following every, every detail Naomi is telling her to do. What she was doing was she was surrendering herself to the kinsman redeemer. In other words, she was, she was like, hey, I need your help. Pretty much if you read the story, when he wakes up and he sees her, and, and she pretty much tells him, look, I, I need you. You know, you're, my, you're, you're one of the closest kin to us. You know, we need you. You know, we could lose our farm. You know, we need you. In other words, step up to the plate, man. You know, you know <laughs> step up to the plate. Be my, be my, be my superman. Be my, be my knight in shining armor, you know. Take me under your, your clothes. Or in some translations, take me under your wing. So it's just like, I need your protection. I need your security. And by the way, you're good looking too, so let's get married, you know. So she's putting all, she's kind of like, hey, I'm giving a hint, man. Let, let's get married, you know. You know, so, <laughs> so she's giving him a hint like, hey, she's actually propo proposing to him. You know, in our culture or European culture, the man that proposes, but in their culture, you know, she don't play around. She's the type of woman, you know, yeah, yeah, she was blunt. <laughs> she's like, hey, I need you, you know, let's get married. But we see, that's a point what happens with us. You see, Boaz, he's a type of Christ. And you see, he, she needed him as a redeemer. She needed him for security. She needed him. So when she laid her feet down, she was surrendering herself to him, saying, I'm all you got. Like, I'm all, 
you're my everything, you know, you, you're all I got, you know, I need you, you know, me, me, oh, me, we need you. And so it's the same thing kind of with us. When we came to our Boaz, you know, we were Gentile like Ruth was. We didn't have no inheritance. We had no stake in the, in the kingdom of God or in the Jewish economy. We had, no, we had no hope. We had no, you know, we had no reason, you know, to be in God's kingdom. We were outcasts. But like Ruth, as a Gentile and as a, well, she accepted the God of the Bible or the Jewish God. But, but this, like, this like she went surrender herself to Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, so that we did. When we got saved, when we said, Lord, I surrender my life to you, we went down at our, our redeemer's feet and we said, we need you. We're nothing without you. You know, you have to be my kinsman redeemer. You have to redeem me from my sins, you know. You have to redeem me and, and, and so I can have inheritance in the kingdom of God. So I don't lose my inheritance. I don't lose my land and, and, and my belongings, you know. So that's, so that's Jesus. This is a picture of Boaz being Christ and us surrendering to Christ. And another thing, too, that's pretty amazing. I want to put this out because if you read in the Bible, the church is represent as a woman. It's a symbology as a woman. I think it's in the book of Revelations where the Bible makes it clear Jesus married the church. He married the woman that represent the church. If you look at this incident and you look at the book of Joseph, Joseph marries a Gentile pagan woman. And here Boaz is about to marry Ruth, a Moabitess, who's these two women are not Jewish at all, have no nothing to do in the Jewish line or whatever. But they're Gentiles. But Joseph and Boaz, they both represent Christ, married these Gentile women. So it's the same thing kind of with us. You know, Christ marries a Gentile church. He married us. You know, we weren't Jewish. We had no Jewish heritages of no sort. We were all pagans. Once, I mean, one way or another, we were pagans. We had no connection. We all worship Morlock, their God that Moab worship, kind of speaking. We worship harsh gods and demanded harsh things human sacrifice, you know, demanded all kind of hard religious duties, you know, but she gave that all up and she went to her kinsman redeemer that, you know, that's like us, we, we need a kinsman redeemer, you know, we were Gentile and then when we laid at the feet of Christ, you know, we have come part. You see, God's design was never just for the Jews to be saved. You see, the Jewish people in mostly in, in Jesus's day, they thought they were it. They thought, oh, man, we're the seed of Abraham. You know, matter of fact, uh, it was in the book of John when they told Jesus that. And they said, we're from the seed of Abraham, you know, pretty much because we have Abraham's seed. We're going to heaven because we're part of Abraham's seed. You know, so they did have the mentality like we're the only ones that saved. We're the only ones got it together. But, of course, Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, their detentions was always from the Bible, from these two examples, God's attention was for Jews and Gentiles on the one banner, be saved on the Christ. See, the Jews had it wrong, like Peter, when God sent the, uh, the sheep down, and, he said, and the Lord told Peter, eat. He said, well, I don't eat nothing that's unclean. I'm a Jew, for Pete's sake. You know, Lord, you know who I am? I'm Jewish. We don't eat pig and snakes and, you know, alligators and spiders. We don't eat none of that stuff. That's unclean, you know. And God says, whatever man calls unclean, I don't call unclean. And that was talking about Gentiles. So even to Peter's perspective, he was growing up with that mentality that Gentiles could never be saved. Or Gentiles were just dolls. They had no chance of getting into heaven. So through these two examples with, you know, with Ruth and with the Egyptian woman that, that uh, Joseph married, they were both Gentiles. So that's a perfect picture of Christ redeeming us and marrying a Gentile, us, the Gentiles. He, Christ is marrying us, or he's redeeming us from slavery. He's redeeming us from losing our inheritance, and he comes to redeem our inheritance. So I, that's a perfect picture of Christ right there, and she's surrendering herself. So as the story goes, she, he, uh, he tells, okay, stay for tonight, and then in the morning when the sun rises, go, go back. Now the reason why he told her that because there were families around, and he didn't want to disturb the families that were, or the people who were around. It was not just him 
you know, sleeping in that area. There was other people sleeping. So he's like, stay here. And then in the morning, don't wake up nobody up. Don't disturb nobody up. Wake up in the morning. Stay where you're at by my feet. And then in the morning, you will get up. When the sunrise comes, you will get up and you will be on your way. So, and then he told her that while they were talking, he said, but there's another kin that's closer to me. So I will have to go in the morning and I have to go to the city by the city gates and talk to this relative. We don't know his name or we don't know because the Bible don't mention much who he is. But he said, I got to go meet this relative in the morning. So I got to get with the judges. I got to get with the elders of the land. And we got to talk about, you know, some law stuff. So she left. And the next morning, he went to the city gate. Now, back then, the city gate was very, very important back then. You see, that's where a lot of your district court stuff was done, was at the gate. If you had a, excuse me, if you had a political matter, you would go to the gate. That's where the elders were. They would sit at the gate. Because if you read in Samuel, that's where Absalom got his power at, because he was by the gate of the city. And he took the people's juridistic cases, or he took their, their legal cases, other words. And that's how he won the people, because he went to the gate. So back then, the gate was one of those places where you did your justice or you did your, uh, your court stuff at. And it was also where you got the news. Remember, there's traders from all over the world. There's people from Egypt. There's people from all, probably all over the world who's trading in the city. So they're like, hey, what's the news out there? You know, it was kind of like their Fox News back in the day or it was like their media back in the day. That's where they heard all the gossip. You know, like if somebody came, a, a guy who was in Egypt, he, would, he was from Egypt and he did trade. You know, he bought stuff to Israel from Egypt. And they're like, hey, how's your country? What's going on over there? Oh, we had another big dust storm or yeah, there was a new pharaoh. You know what I'm saying? So other words, that's where the, they got all their news at. That's where they got all their information at. So he's at the gate. And he talks to this guy, and he gets all the elders together as witnesses. And he tells this guy, the, uh, the closer relative, he says, um, he says, well, did you know that this land needs to be bought? And he explains the situation, and he says, uh, he says oh, yeah, he's all about the land. And then he says, yeah, but if you buy the land, you also have to get this woman. And she's from Moab. So when he said that, he was like, well, I don't want to ruin my inheritance. And she's a Gentile, and I don't want to marry a Gentile. And by the way, I'm married, so I don't think my wife would, would be too happy if I uh, say I'm marrying a second woman. You know, uh, that won't go too well with her. You know, happy wife, happy life, you know, or happy home. And, the, you know, the woman's happy. Everybody's happy. So it's just, you know, like, I ain't bringing another woman to my house. So it's like, you could take responsibility. You know, you could, you could be the kinsman redeemer. So he bought the land from, you know, he bought the land back from him so Naomi and, and Ruth can be secure. And then he tells the elders that I also would do my part as a kinsman redeemer. I will marry her and bring children, you know, into the family like I'm supposed to. So the, made the, short, the story short, he marries Ruth. And this is where God's divine providence finally meets the end of the rule. So all that time, all that putting together all that hardness and all that troubleness. This is where the reason why this why is important. Because in the genealogy of Christ, Ruth is actually Jesus' great great grandmother. And Boaz is his great great grandfather. So he Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, great great Jesus is great great and David's great great. But anyway, he they're part they're part of the people that bought like because Jesse was the father of David. And David, you know, was the line where Christ came from. And Ruth had a, a son. His name was Obed. And he produced Jesse. And so from that line came where Christ came from. So all that time, they didn't know what God was bringing them at. They didn't know that God was working behind the scenes. They didn't know what God was up to. But all that time, God was bringing them to that place where the tree of Christ came from, the genealogy of the tree of Christ, you know, came from. And it also benefited them, and it also benefits us today. So some, something that was bad and something that was horrible, God took it and turned it for good. 